I get a lot of migraines. Uh, they aren't uh, completely debilitating ones. They're, they're really just annoying and persistent in reminding me that they are there. Um, I always know when I'm going to get one because within about a 20-minute period before the migraine actually hits, one of three things will, will happen. I'll get these little floater things in my eyes, and maybe some of you have had that. They look like little, little beams of fluorescent lights that sometimes even float around like, like little worms, or sometimes they'll just uh, stay in place. Or um, the, the other way that I know it's coming is that I'll get tunnel vision, and so everything in my peripheral vision will basically be black, and I'll just be able to, to look forward, and, and that's it. Or one of the weirdest ones that I will uh, get sometimes is uh, everything is fine, and then all of a sudden I will just lose vision in one eye uh, for up to about 60 seconds or so. Um, it, and then once that uh, happens, it clears up, and I know in about 20 minutes I'm going to get a migraine. So it's time to hit the Tylenol, it's, it's time to hit the ibuprofen, then everything's going to be good again. I can handle the migraines, the actual headaches that I get, um, but for the most part, uh, very few of them have ever actually laid me out. Uh, for me, it's the pre-migraine thing that are the most debilitating. And so when those things come along, they're all-consuming. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. Uh, when those things come about, like, I, I, I can't do anything but focus on, on them until they're gone with the floaters. Anything that I'm looking at seems obscured because of these little lights that are in my eye. When, when I get the tunnel vision, it's a bit disconcerting because my peripheral vision is gone. And if I'm driving, it's a little scary. But, you know, it, it, ha it happens. And, and you can imagine that it's a little scary when you completely lose vision in, in one eye for even, you know, a few seconds. But uh, I know that, uh, that um, uh, when those things happen, that that those are all the things that I can focus on. So in many ways, my history of migraines actually parallels many of our ground-level, everyday, real-life lives as Christians. We've, we've recognized our sin and what the eternal ramifications of them are. Uh, we've seen the beauty of Christ in the gospel, how he, uh, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, we've responded to God's grace by trusting in Christ alone ha and have in turn received forgiveness and pardon and, and, and peace and all those things that come with it. We've read in our Bibles about how when we become Christians, we are new creations. That old person is, has, has gone, it's dead, but and we are new creations today. We acknowledge the reality of heaven where we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ one day. But there seems to be a disconnect between all those wonderful things that are ours in Christ Jesus in our everyday lives. And while it, it is those things that, that, that should be held in front of us like a torch in, in, in a dark world, we are often shielded from seeing them. The pressures and the stressors and the sufferings are often all-consuming. 
Now, I know that my ocular issues um, are, are, are meaning that a, a migraine is, is coming and that they're very temporary. I've had 30 plus years of dealing with these things to know that these things are fairly accurate when they come. But yet every single one of them demands my attention in such a way that it's, it's hard for me to focus on anything else for about five minutes. And uh, in the same way, many of us are so consumed with the things that are right in front of us that we can't do anything other than focus on those things and the difficulties that they are. We are living in the short term. We only know just how to get by for the moment. Brothers and sisters, this is not what God desires for his children. And as we look into Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25 today, we are going to see that what we consider as all-consuming blinders to the future glory that is ours in Christ Jesus are not blinders at all, but rather they should be uh, binoculars to help us to see what is in front of us. The bitterness of today is meant for us to taste the sweetness of tomorrow. They are to help us to remember that in just a little while, things are going to be much, much more than okay. Paul begins this amazing section with a comparison that frames his argument here in verse 18 when he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that is his entire point out of all of these scriptures here that we ought to soak in is that in, in comparison to the joy that we have before us in, in Christ Jesus, uh, in comparison to that, to all the difficulties in life, the physical, the mental, the social, the, the spiritual sufferings that we face in this world are not even comparable to the glory that is going to be ours in Christ Jesus. And so today, uh, that is the gist, the overall point. And Paul works this out in three ways. The first is that we need to examine creation's longing for redemption. Examine creation's longing for redemption. Julie and I lived in Kentucky for three years when I was in seminary. And in just those three years, we experienced almost every kind of natural disaster than you can, that you can actually uh, even imagine. There was a powerful ice storm that knocked out the power for days. Uh, the Ohio River flooded the downtown area one summer, causing all sorts of, of destruction there. Uh, a hurricane actually made its way up from the Gulf Coast up the Mississippi and ended up in, in Louisville. And we felt the effects of, of that hurricane. There was a an earthquake that, that uh, the epicenter was in Illinois, but the only place that actually got damage was in Louisville, Kentucky, of all places. Um, there was a powerful windstorm that knocked out the power for more than a week. And do you see a, a recurring pattern that they don't know how to handle the power outages uh, out, out in Louisville? And uh, one fall evening, a tornado actually struck the next street over and damaged the gas station that was right next to our apartment. Uh, the, this isn't necessarily a natural disaster, but we only had one car between the two of us when we first moved there. And one morning, 
a lightning bolt actually came down and struck our car and fried the computer board of the car. The, uh, the Pontiac dealership didn't know what had happened, so they chalked it up as a warranty, which was super cool uh, because we didn't have to pay anything for that. You know, you think that there, there's so much beauty in creation. Uh, we used to go annually to Itasca State Park and we would bike that 17-mile uh, wilderness drive and it was stunning. The headwaters in the Mississippi and there was one part in particular that's just amazing. You're, you're biking down that trail and just as you're starting a steep uh, decline, there's this gorgeous view of, of Lake Mary that pops up and one that just captures your attention but not for too long because there's actually a really sharp turn that goes left and if you don't pay attention to the turn you'll actually go into Lake Mary but for that second that you see that view it is it is absolutely stunning now think about the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, uh, Yosemite, the beaches of California, the Redwoods, the, the, the Badlands, and you think of, of the Alps, and you can think of the Sahara, and you can think of, of uh, jungles, and all those things are just absolutely gorgeous when we look at all of creation. It's exactly why the psalmist said in, ver in, in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So then with all of that beauty, why is is it that Julie and I experienced all of those things in just three short years? Why do blizzards rage? Why do floods consume? Why do animals attack? Why do tornadoes destroy? Why do earthquakes tear open the earth? Paul tells us in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now that word futility is not the same meaning that the preacher uses in Ecclesiastes. If you were to look back in the book of Ecclesiastes, he would say that everything is futile or all is vanity, which means it's absolutely worthless. But that's not the way that Paul is using it here. He's not saying that creation is worthless. Rather, the word futility here points to the fact that creation is not fulfilling the purpose for which it was created for. It, it, it's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3 when God curses the ground because of Adam. Remember he said, cursed is the ground because of you. When he said that, he was subjecting the earth. He was, he was putting it into submission that from here on, out, uh, here on out, the earth is going to be living in futility. And we know that it was God who subjected it, not just through Genesis chapter 3, but Paul goes on here in Romans 8 when he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So who is that him that he's talking about here? The context demands that it's talking about God. It does not talk about Satan. Satan is not even a part of this conversation here in, in Romans 8. So it is this futility then, this not living up to what it was created for, that we have all of these issues. Your garden won't be perfect this summer because of the futility of creation. We're living in tornado season again, and sure enough, it's, it's going to tear a lot of people's lives upside down. Snakes will bite. Bears will attack. The creation is living in futility. And we feel it every day. So then why did God do this? 
And at the end of verse 20, Paul tells us that he did it in hope. The hope here is not the kind of well-wishing that we, we, we make uh, of, of hoping something happens. I hope that the Vikings can win a Super Bowl before I die. <laughs> I hear a lot of groanings because you know that what the probability of that actually happening is. That's worldly hope. But hope in a biblical sense is solid and sure. It is guaranteed. And what is this hope pointing towards? Verse 21 tells us that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is subjected to futility. It is enslaved to corruption. And one day it will be set free from that. And Paul tells us that creation's emancipation is subsequent to our redemption. The glory of the children of God in this verse is pointing to resurrection. And our resurrection is, is, is the motorcycle and the sidecar is the future glory of creation being redeemed as well. This is good news this is what will get us through the most intense of suffering. And in verse 22 now, Paul incites us to look at the evidence. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This groaning isn't just aimless complaining. There's a point, and Paul likens it to childbirth. When a woman is in labor, and especially in transition, no one in any labor room ever in the history of humans has ever said, golly, what's wrong? I wonder what's wrong with her. I wonder what's eating her. Of course you know it. It's temporary. And Paul is telling us that creation has been and is groaning because it knows that something better is coming. And what is that? We find that back in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for our full redemption. Scripture says that we are the crown jewel of God's creation. And we are adopted into God's family, and, uh, and we, we got that through faith in Christ, but not entirely yet. We'll be finally and fully adopted on that day. We'll be made new, and creation cannot wait. On that day, that the judge of the universe says fully adopted is the day that creation takes a big sigh of relief. And if you think that Yellowstone looks uh, spectacular now, wait until the day of redemption. Creation is longing for redemption. Second, you should recognize your, your longing for redemption. Paul shifts this idea of, of the creation groaning uh, in verses 19 through 22 to the groanings that we experience as, as Christians. And Christian groaning is much different 
than worldly groaning. To see worldly groaning, all you need to do is turn on the news or go to C-SPAN. The current worldly groaning looks at the problems of the world and uh, sees that it doesn't conform to the image of its ideals. And so they will do one of three things. For one, just cower in a sense of nihilism, which means that oh, the, this is just what it is. We just got to grin and bear it through it. There's nothing really after this, so it just is what it is. Or perhaps they will turn to the government to compel change, or maybe they will turn to activism, which is becoming increasingly prevalent and violent thanks to the overwhelming success of Antifa's propaganda and strategies. So they will groan over some of the things that are happening. The, the, the groaning is, is clearly shown in the desire to do anything and everything possible to change it. Now, uh, that's what worldly groaning looks like. Contrast that now to what Paul is talking about here. In verse 22, it is clear that he's specifically talking about believers in Jesus. It is impossible for those that don't have Jesus to groan in the way that Paul marks it out here in verse 23. This is what he writes. He says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So how do we know that Paul is talking about Christians here? Well, he says, we ourselves. And how does he quantify that describing who the we is? Well, we're the first fruits of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, we need to connect that now to looking back at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 8, when Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh— but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is clear here that if we have trusted in Christ, then we have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us. It's not on the screen here, but Ephesians 1.13 tells us that, that when we received Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sort of like an envelope with that, with that wax stamp on there. It is sealed that this is from God. And it cannot be revoked and so here in verses 9 through 11, he says that one of the benefits uh, to uh, being in the Spirit or having the Spirit is that the Spirit, who was uh, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead, will one day resurrect your dead body as well. This, friends, is the hope of the Christian. That this isn't all that there is. The physical things that you deal with, the pain, the suffering, the news you get from the doctor, the, 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 the relationship strain that you might have with family or friends, that's not what this life is, is going to be like forever. 
You know, going back to verse 23, it's clear that these first fruits of the Spirit is referring to our future resurrection. If the creation is waiting for us to be redeemed, in order for it to be redeemed, then it must mean that our resurrection is the prototype of all of creation's restoration. If we are going to be resurrected in glory, creation will be resurrected in glory as well. So knowing this then, we have to, res we have to recognize the symptoms of our already but not yet aspects of our salvation. Yes, we've been saved. You've been changed. But not fully yet. And so we groan. But not as the world groans. We simply don't complain about how bad the world is. Because the Spirit is in us, we groan as the Spirit does. And the Spirit looks over the world and sees the devastation and the consequences of sin and says with the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you wait? And as we wait, our heart breaks for the lostness of this world. As we wait, we weep when we look at our culture. As we wait, we grieve over the consequences of sin in our family and friends and, and even the, 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 the sin that we have committed. As we wait, we serve those whose lives have been torn apart by disaster and war. As Christians, we have this innate sense. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as Christians, we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, because we know that the only one who can fix this mess that we've gotten ourselves into is the very one who created all things and created it perfectly. And the redemption of our bodies is the first thing that he'll get to work, get to work on. Look for your redemption in Christ. Long for your redemption in Christ. The time is near. It's not far. So recognize your longing and wait patiently for the hope that is ours in Christ. And third and finally, patiently wait for the hope of redemption. Have you ever met a kid who is super excited for Christmas or their birthday, how do you know they're excited? Because it's all they talk about, right? Five minutes goes by. Is it Christmas yet? Well, no, it's, you still have this many sleeps before it's Christmas. It's, all, it's consuming their thoughts. They might have a countdown of days. They might ask you how long it is until they happen. They might daydream about the presents that they will get, or maybe they will come to you groaning, saying, how long is it going to take for this to actually come about? Because children, by their, in their very nature, are impatient, and it's wonderful. But they're also an example of how Christians are to approach our coming salvation. How many of us long for Jesus to come back like a child waits for Christmas? How many of us 
are so excited about the resurrection and glorification of our bodies that we look at death as a gift. We live right now in what I've already said, what theologians call the already but not yet. Yes, we've been saved, we've been forgiven, we've, uh, the stains of them removed. Yes, new life in Christ, glory, hallelujah, yet we're not completely redeemed. We still sin. And we're still sinned against. The kingdom of God is already here, but yet it's not in its fullness. So then what do we do in the interim? We wait patiently. In verse 24, Paul writes, for in this hope we were saved. What is this hope for which we were saved? Verse 23, the adoption as sons, namely the redemption of our bodies. Again, this is not some pie in the sky, pipe dream, this is sure. You can put all the chips in the middle of the table on this one. It's not even a gamble. This is going to happen. God's word testifies to his faithfulness. Everything that he has, every promise that he has given will be completely fulfilled. Not one of his promises have failed yet. And in Christ, they've all come to fruition. And friends, this is what Romans 8 is pointing to, is that our hope is not in a thing or an event. Our hope is in a person, Christ Jesus, who will come back for us. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says that since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And sometimes that is hard to believe, isn't it? Because in the time, uh, we have a hard time being sure about something that we can't see. Paul's keenly aware of how much discouragement can, can settle in and how we can totter on disbelief because of our lack of seeing the object of our faith. But how many of us don't believe in the wind because we can't see it? We can see its effects. How many of us don't believe in, in atoms and nuclei and electrons because we can't see them? Well, you, you currently have all sorts of radio waves and Bluetooth frequencies that are going through you right now and you have absolutely no idea about them. The eye isn't the litmus test for reality. There are far more things happening all around us than we can even imagine. That's why Paul says that our hope in Christ in verse 24 when he says, now hope that is not seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. If Excuse me, if we were to see our hope now in light of everything that we are surrounded by in the world, it would be rather confusing. How can these two realities work? How can the kingdom of this world coincide with the kingdom of God in all of its fullness? It doesn't work. They are not, uh, they, they are mutually exclusive. You, you can't have 
both of them existing. That's why Paul wrote way back in, in verse uh, uh, 16, uh, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering we see, the suffering we feel, we know its reality. The glorification, we don't see yet. That's coming. So then in verse 25, makes perfect sense. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but do not overlook this fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Do you ever say to God, God, could you maybe hurry it up just a little bit? God doesn't count his slowness like we do. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So then, friends, knowing what is in store for us, we patiently wait. We patiently wait the, the pain of cancer the rheumatoid arthritis, the knee replacements, the colds, the pneumonia, the, the, the hearing loss, and, and, and so much more. We, we patiently endure the shame of rejection and loss. We, we taste the, 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 the salty tears of conflict. We, we patiently mourn the death of family and friends. We, we patiently endure all of these things because Jesus is worth it. His kingdom and all of its fullness will be beyond worth it. So wait for the hope of your redemption. For me, my, my pre-migraine symptoms can often be worse than the actual migraines themselves. And, but just as I have had to learn over and over and over again to look beyond the symptoms to the clearness that is to come, it's not far off. You and I need to recognize the symptoms of a fallen world and look beyond them to what is to come. We live today for the future glory that is ours in Christ. And I'll leave you with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal.